7, um, there were two interactions with individuals in Gentile country. There was the, the incident with the Syrophoenician woman who um, asked Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter, and um, a rather unusual interaction between this woman and our Lord Jesus. And, and what she expressed was a surprising understanding, and she had a faith that surpassed even many Jews of that day. And then we see also the healing of a deaf man at the end, the very end of chapter 7, and this too was in Gentile territories, um, and, and rather unusual interaction with, with Jesus and this man. And then in the end, what we had was a man who, who was on fire, who couldn't be quiet about Jesus and what had happened to him. And um, so we come to this passage uh, this evening about the feeding of the 4,000. And um, we also think, and many commentators think, that, that this, hap- this too happened in Gentile country. And the reason is that Mark doesn't give us any change of location from chapter 7. Um, there's language that is used that describes people coming from afar, which is uh, typically used in the Old Testament uh, as referring to Gentile nations And it seems to make sense that this is in Gentile country. And here Jesus presents a miraculous feeding in a very similar fashion, in some ways, to the feeding of the 5,000 that we looked at in chapter 6. But for this this time, it's for an audience that is primarily Gentile. And in contrast to this feast of bread that we see in the first 10 or so verses we see a famine of understanding among the disciples. And that's the reason I've titled this sermon in, in maybe a peculiar way, Bread, Feast, and Famine. So let us pray and then let us read God's Word and see what He has for us this evening. Lord God, we pray that You would open our eyes that we might receive wondrous things from Thy law. Lord, open our ears to hear. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to love and know and understand the truth that you have in your word. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Help us to understand your word, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, 
seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this evening. As we said, this text is one of contrasts. Between the feast of verses 1 through 10 and the famine of understanding that we see in that final section, we see in between there another tense interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, very similar to tense situations that we have seen before. And I want to consider this text under these three headings, a feast of bread, the demand of a sign, and a famine of understanding. Now, the account, as we said, of the feeding of the 4,000 here in chapter 8 is similar in some ways to the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. In fact, some liberal scholars have sought to say that, that this is one and the same event, that, that for some reason it was duplicated in the mind of the author of this gospel. But there's many reasons to say that it, that is not true. We dismiss this readily as an attempt to discredit the inerrancy of Scripture. For while there were a few similarities, there were other major distinctions. And Jesus, as we saw in the final verses, even teaches from both of those speaking to his disciples. We see there's a difference in the context, in the location, in the number fed, in the amount of food available to begin with, in the amount of food left over. To think that the eyewitnesses of these two incredible miracles would become confused and think that there's only one is, in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, ludicrous. But what are we to learn from this event? Well, first of all, we see the identity of our Lord. Now, we've been talking about all through the Gospel of Mark, who is Jesus? That's one of the questions that's in the background of really everything that we've seen. Who is Jesus? What is his identity? And we see that here. We see that he's the Lord over the food and provision of his followers. He's their provider. Just as God provided food in the wilderness called manna, Jesus is here providing an abundance of bread in a desolate place. Jesus is showing them, he shows them in sometimes subtle ways and in sometimes very clear ways that he is God. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 55, which invites men to come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. That text later reproves those that would spend their money on that which is not bread and things that do not satisfy. 
The Gospel of John records the teaching of Jesus following the feeding of the 5,000, where he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is the provider, and he is the very nourishment of his people. And in providing for these 4,000 or 4,000 plus, he shows his identity, that he is God, that he is the provider. We see also in this text the compassion of our Lord. One distinction between the feeding of the 5,000 and this feeding of the 4,000 is kind of how it's presented, how the need is presented. We see in Mark 6, in the feeding of the 5,000, we see that the disciples first speak to Jesus and tell him to send the crowds away. They need some food. And they probably thought, we, we don't have the resources. They need to get out of here so they can get something to eat. But here in our text this evening, notice that Jesus initiates the conversation. And he says, I have compassion on the crowds. Perhaps the disciples were already thinking in their mind, hey, it's time to get rid of these folks. They're getting hungry. But no, Jesus knew their need. Also, we need to think about the fact that in this crowd there was very likely many who were merely spectators of our Lord. Many who probably came just to see the miracles, just came out of curiosity, came not because they really wanted to follow the Lord, but yet they were there. Jesus had compassion on this whole crowd, including the true followers and true believers, and even those who were merely spectators. And he uses this moment to remind his disciples of the serious need of those people. They had been with him for days, and they would likely faint on the way home if they didn't get something to eat. So in this passage, in this miracle that Jesus brings, we need to notice that it happens in Gentile territory. We see in this the grace given to the Gentiles. We think about why Jesus did this miracle. Well, he had done something very similar two chapters before. He had already shown that he could multiply a small amount and feed thousands of people. Why did he do this again? There's reasons behind the things that Jesus did. Yes, they show his compassion, his power, but he did them for specific reasons. The Gospel of John calls them signs. And what does a sign do? A sign points to something else. So what is this text? What is this message? What is this event pointing to? Well, he is showing here his inclusion of the Gentiles in his kingdom. We, we heard that this morning. We've heard that again and again in, in messages from this pulpit, that the message is of salvation is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. We see that all the way back in the beginning of the covenant promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. What did God say to Abraham? He says, I will bless you for what reason? To make you a blessing. Isaiah 42, God reminds his covenant people that they are there to be a light to the nations. We sang Psalm 67 this morning, which talks about how the psalmist is inviting, asking God for mercy And to be blessed, why? So they could be a blessing, not just to fellow Jews, but to the nations. So we see God's heart is for the nations. And at times we see see it in individuals like Ruth and Rahab, 
who were not of God's people, yet we see that they were included in the covenant. And sometimes we see that in very widespread ways when God used Jonah to preach to the people of a wicked city, Nineveh, and a widespread revival brought many Gentiles into the covenant. And here we see our Lord Jesus himself ministering in Gentile territory and repeating a miracle for them that was done previously in Israel. And I wonder if his disciples looked at one another with some degree of bewilderment, recognizing that Jesus was repeating this miracle yet for a different group of people. And did you ever stop to think about the fact that Jesus was a guest in this territory? He was away from his national home, away from the area in which he had been ministering previously. He was a guest. And what did he do? He showed compassion for a different people group. He considered their needs and he sought out resources for them. He miraculously fed them. What was he doing? He was being a host. Jesus is acting as a host, not a guest. And we will see Jesus doing this more as we go along. I thought about this and I have to confess, this this idea of a host and a guest is not original with me, but I, I sat under the, the mentorship of, of the missions pastor at First Pres Jackson who, who just kind of beat this drum continually how we should be hosts how, and not guests. But we think about it. What's the difference? Well, if you are a guest, what do you do? You go to someone's house. If you're a guest there, what do they do? They serve you, and you are the recipient of that service. They say, can I get you a drink of water? Can I get you some tea? Here's some appetizers. And soon you feel at home as a guest in their home. You are served. If you go to a restaurant, you're waited upon. Your order is taken. Your food is brought. And if, it's a good, if they're doing a good job, the manager might even come out and say, is everything all right? They're giving you the royal treatment as their guest. Is that how you see yourself in this world especially when it comes to unbelievers? Are you a guest that receives or are you a host that gives? What does a host do? A host serves. A host seeks to know and meet the needs of others. A host helps others to have positive experiences in sometimes unfamiliar territory. Mark 10, 45 that we had this morning for our assurance of pardon encapsulates the mission of the Messiah where it says about the Lord Jesus, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to give. He came to serve. And that's what he calls us to. Let me ask you tonight, do you see yourself as a host, as a servant to your co-workers, to your, to your neighbors, to your family members, to that person before you or behind you at the line, in the line at Starbucks? Do you go about your day asking, God, show me how I can be a better host today. Help me be aware of the needs of those around me so that I might be able to show them grace to serve them and have a way of ministering, not just in practical means, but in spiritual means, that God's word might be applied to their life and their situation. Be a host. So we see this feast 
that Jesus put on, that he put out for the Gentiles. He was the host of this feast. You see Christ, who is God, the provider. He shows compassion on the multitude, grace to the Gentiles by being a host, when he was really a guest in that territory. And then the text takes a, a quick turn, as Mark is so so eager to do often, takes a turn and again shows us an interaction with the Pharisees and how they demand a sign. They were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now you might wonder, okay, so what's wrong with them asking for a sign? Now we just said a few minutes ago that a sign points to something, that the miracles were signs, and that's true, they were. But it seems obvious that the Pharisees were not looking for that kind of sign. They wanted a sign on their own terms. They wanted a heavenly sign because when Matthew and Luke talk about this this account and this interaction with the Pharisees, they give us a little more of the interaction. And in that, Jesus responds by discussing the signs that are in the sky, things by which we predict the weather. Like if the sky is red, we say it's going to be, you know, we got to beware that there might be a storm coming. And Jesus told them that they could see the sign of the weather, but they could not read the signs of the times. And that was his indictment against the Pharisees for them asking for this sign. So what was the sin in this question? Well, the sin in the question is this, that the Pharisees' hearts were hardened to what Jesus came to do. They they wanted Jesus to reveal himself on their terms, not upon the terms he had already began to reveal himself that we've already seen up to this point in this gospel. They wanted Jesus to reveal himself on their terms. They wanted a spectacular heavenly sign. Maybe they were thinking about Moses on Mount Sinai and all those signs from heaven that, that showed what happened there and that God was present and that, that God was revealing himself. Maybe they thought, if you are really from God like Moses is, we need to see signs with thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. Maybe that's what they were after. It seems like it was. They seemed to want shock and awe. But Jesus came to bring compassion and grace and ultimately redemption from sins, which was far better than the spectacular signs they were hoping for. They didn't know their need of a Savior. They were smug and secure in themselves and their own self-righteousness. They couldn't appreciate the mission of the Messiah because they didn't know the hypocrisy of their own hearts. They didn't know how lost they really were. And so how do we see Jesus responding? Well, in verse 12, it says that he sighed deeply in his spirit. It seems that he was so, unbur- he was so burdened by their unbelief that he sighed deeply and, and simply says, why does this generation seek for a sign? And then goes on to say that, that they will not be given a sign. It seems that, as one commentator called it, a cry of profound anguish at the bitter opposition of these men to Jesus and his message. These men would not be convinced by the signs that Jesus was doing. How would they 
how could they not see something about who Jesus was? He had revealed himself in so many ways already. He had shown his power. He had shown his authority. He had said, you know, the kingdom of God is coming. And yet their ears were stopped and their eyes were blinded. And they persisted in their unbelief. And Jesus says, no sign, no further sign will be given to them. So I ask you, what about you? Are you rejecting Jesus because he has not revealed himself upon his own terms, upon your terms? Are you demanding a sign saying, Jesus, if if you'll show me this, I'll believe in you or I'll trust in you? Be careful because Christ has revealed himself in his word exactly who he is. The question is, will you believe him? Will you trust him? And if you've not trusted in Christ as your Savior today, come to, come to Christ. Come to Him today. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans ten thirteen. So we've seen this feast. We've seen the misun- the, not just the misunderstanding, the, the unbelief and the rejection of the signs that Jesus provided and the, the unbelief of the Pharisees. And then we see... The irony of the rest of this in this famine of understanding. We've, and and this, this, key, this theme of, of the disciples' lack of understanding is, is really a thread that we see woven throughout the whole gospel. And we really see it highlighted here in chapter 8. And we'll, we'll consider it more as we go along because um, in, in chapter 8 is, is kind of the hinge of the whole book, if you will. Because in that, Peter makes what we call the great confession, where he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what happens just a few verses later? Jesus is rebuking him for his lack of understanding. And so really this this theme is very prevalent in chapter 8 here. And so what we see here is the disciples' lack of understanding. And and, um, Mark sets the scene by, by showing them that they're wondering about bread. After Jesus has just fed 4,000 people, they're on a journey and they're like, wait a minute, we only brought one loaf of bread. What were we thinking? But Jesus wants to tell them about something else. He isn't talking about bread. He's picking up on their conversation about bread and takes it in a whole other direction. And I just love how Jesus does this. And we don't have time to really think in depth about this tonight. But this would be a great study for you to do on your own. Is to think about conversations, that how Jesus uses common things and things that are in the forefront of people's minds and takes them in a spiritual direction. And I think we have much to learn from the Savior about that. Because he does that here. And he does that by talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Well, you probably know what leaven is. We would think it's, it's, it's pretty much the same as yeast, okay? It's a material that makes bread rise. But what is the leaven of the Pharisees and of, Herod's, and of Herod? That's a peculiar phrase. Well, Luke tells us directly that the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy, which really fits directly in line with the things that Scripture tell us about the Pharisees, that they were hypocrites. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but they were full of rottenness on the inside. But what about the leaven of Herod? That's, that's an interesting phrase because the Herod and the Pharisees were, were very different and had different goals. 
But if you think about the last glimpse we had of Herod, he was a man filled with lust and unbelief and self-interest. And given this picture, I think we could say that Jesus is warning the disciples about the dangers of idolatry, unbelief, and hypocrisy. And those, those sins are just as common today as they were then. And you don't have to raise your hand, but think about how many here, if you were honest with me, with yourself, and with God, would not say that you had struggled with one of these sins in the past week. Jesus is warning them about it. And he uses strong words. He says, watch out, beware. What do we use those words for? We use those in case when someone is in grave danger. If your child's about ready too close to the street, you say, watch out, there's cars coming. Jesus is warning them. This is serious stuff that he's talking about. And we think about leaven. What does leaven do? What does yeast do? It spreads. It increases. It only takes a little to spread through the whole loaf. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul said in his counsel to the Corinthian church when they needed to excommunicate an unrepentant sinner from their midst. And he tells them, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, to preserve the purity of the church, they needed to get rid of that individual because of his persistent sin. Well, sin spreads. Sin increases if it is not checked. Beware of the sins of the Pharisees, Jesus said. These sins cloud your understanding of Jesus. And I think that was the case with the disciples here. And immediately after Jesus' strong warning, we see the disciples begin to reason. But they don't reason about what Jesus is saying. It's not like they're wrestling like they should be with the words of the Savior... No, they're reasoning with themselves about the fact that they don't have bread. And it seems that probably they were arguing about it. And I can just picture them, you know, looking at one another saying, Hey, did you bring some bread? No, I thought you brought bread. I thought it was your day to bring bread on this journey. Great, now we have no bread. And in the middle of their reasoning about the fact that they had no bread, Jesus begins reasoning with them. Look with me in verse 17. Where he says, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And then he asks them five rhetorical questions. He says, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? He's calling these things to mind. He's saying, Disciples, don't you see what you need to see here? Don't you understand about the kingdom of God? Don't you understand who I am? Don't you understand these things? And this language, it's, it's very much like what we saw in Mark 4. It makes us think of the good and the bad soils in the beginning of, of chapter 4 and how Jesus talks about the purpose of the, of the parables is either to to draw men to Christ or to further harden them if they reject Christ. And we think about this and we think, this is strong language coming from our Lord. And it's, it's a strong warning to the disciples' lack of understanding and their unbelief. I think, it, I think there were both things present there with them. <clears throat> he says that, he, he seems to say that they are dangerously near the Pharisees and others that are on the outside and cannot understand. They needed to see the seriousness 
of their situation. And then Jesus follows that with two actual questions that they answer about the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Another reason, as we said, to remember that these are separate miracles. And Jesus is reminding the disciples about what he has done. Here are signs for them. Jesus is God. He is Messiah. He is showing you who he is. And the disciples are struggling, still struggling to understand. He is the one who can abundantly provide their needs, both for the bread that they lack and more importantly for their lack of understanding about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Jesus reproves the disciples for their lack of understanding. He warns them of the pervasiveness of the sins of the Pharisees in their opposition to God and their spiritual blindness from their unbelief and hypocrisy. But he ends with a little bit of hope. Notice, if you will, the final question in verse 21. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? I like the way that word yet is in there because it it helps us see there's a little bit of hope for these guys. They're not complete losers. God is still going to use them. They're going to get it. They're going to understand. And you think about Peter. He, he in my mind, he's, he's one of the dullest knives in the drawer in many times in, in, the, in the gospel of Mark. But yet look at Acts 2. What does God do with him? He preaches this mighty message of salvation of who Jesus is and what he came to do and 3,000 souls are saved. Perhaps you have seen yourself in the disciples here. Perhaps you find yourself focusing on petty things instead of things that are truly important. Perhaps your vision of Christ is clouded by the all too common sins of hypocrisy, idolatry, and self-interest. How do you return Will you begin by repenting? Seek to forsake the sins that take your mind off of Christ. Then seek to know and understand Christ and His kingdom. How do you do that? You do that in the way that God has revealed Himself in His Word. Study it. Memorize it. Talk about it with your family. Ask God to help you use it in your own life. And help you to have a ready word from His Word for those in need. And then seek to be a host. Seek for ways to serve others practically and more important, spiritually. Seek ways to serve and through that service to share the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray.